Relationships are so confusing and we enter them and we exit them for so many different reasons. And the fact that the relationship no longer exists does not devalue that the relationship existed. And this is what happens when we think they're in a relationship with someone else that automatically lessens the value of my relationship with that person. And that's just not true. They're just in a different relationship. And I think understanding that maybe we were not a good fit for them does not mean that we are not a good fit for someone else or that we're worthless. So our worth is really not connected to our fit with someone else. And so I think a lot of the frustration and the jealousy and the hurt occurs when our sense of current identity is still tied to this person. And when we are struggling with our beliefs and narratives around relationships. So if we think like if a relationship fails, I failed. If they moved on quickly, that means it didn't matter. So really catching ourselves in these beliefs and assumptions is really important. And then unpacking them and going, why are they here? Where do they stem from? And are they serving me? What does it truly mean when we say closure comes from us? And what if we feel like the relationship isn't really over? You're listening to Unsween and Unfiltered, the podcast, episode five of season four. When you really think about it, no one ever really goes away completely. They either live in our minds, our hearts, or both. And from time to time, we may find ourselves in a chapter in our lives where we may be dealing with a generous amount of unanswered questions and the lingering feeling of not knowing if we made the right choice, from dealing with the relationship ending to trusting yourself again, and of course, the struggles we face when giving and receiving the honest and at times brutal truth. We can't help but to desperately search for the closure we need in order to move forward in life. When focusing on the topic of honesty, I find myself searching for it. But am I really ready to receive it? Unfiltered and void of it being sugarcoated? How does honesty play a role when seeking closure? And what do we do when self-trust and self-forgiveness are not things that we have yet mastered? How do we not fall into the trap of believing that closure comes from those who have potentially hurt us and where an apology is still pending? In today's episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Sarah Kubrick, who is also better known as the Millennial Therapist for her Instagram account, where she shares tips and content related to mental health, self-reflection, and real-life human experiences. I am truly grateful to have had this discussion with Sarah and her ability to lead with compassion in answering every question I had asked. We also discuss the struggles of accepting how others may not even realize what they have done to us, if it's even possible to go back to who we used to be before certain relationships ended, how self-sabotage can sneak its way into decisions that we make for ourselves, and so much more. Let's dive in. Thank you so much, Sarah. I could never have imagined the possibility of having you on this podcast. You know, your account, your content, it's bite-sized, digestible, but oftentimes hard truths that, you know, we need to hear. And I've learned so much from your content. And sometimes it's like there's things that I never even knew about until I came across your content. And I learned about certain topics such as like self-sabotage, trusting yourself, self-forgiveness. There's just so much there. And I know a lot of people are very familiar with who you are and your account, but I would still love for you to introduce yourself and then we can get right into it. That's so sweet of you to say thank you for supporting my account and for being there. Um, Whenever I meet people that actually follow, I'm like, really? You you, you read this? Of course. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's like, that's so sweet. Yeah. So I'm Sarah Kubrick, often known as the millennial therapist because of the account, I suppose. And I'm an existential psychotherapist, writer and consultant. From your perspective, like, how do you think therapy has evolved? Because for me, like, maybe even just like seven years ago, whatever hardship that I was facing at that moment, I could have never imagined that I would go and seek therapy fast forward seven years today. So I know you've had this account for maybe quite some time, maybe a few years, not even quite some time, but you've been doing this work for plenty of years. Like, how do you feel like therapy has evolved? And do you think that there is still this taboo circling around it? Or do you feel like more people are now accepting of it? And if so, why do you think that is? Do you think social media has connected us in a way where we're kind of now able to be more open about what we're going through? And we realize like certain things and certain struggles that we went through behind closed doors, other people are also experiencing this. And you kind of want to learn more about this. And you want to talk about this a little bit more. And therapy is our outlet now. Mm, yeah, I think that therapy has definitely become more accessible. I think that was part of the movement. I think therapy was kind of an elite club in the past. We'll talk about the stigma of it later. But I think that it was really expensive. Most people didn't feel like they could just walk up to a clinic and, and see a therapist. It wasn't available in as many languages, probably depending where you're living. And so now I know in Vancouver, for example, there's clinics that that, you know, ensure that there are therapists that speak multiple languages. And I think that that's really beautiful. So if you are an immigrant and you come into a new country, you might not be able to, you know, go to therapy because if it's based purely on the way that you're communicating and you don't feel like you can express yourself, then you might feel like you're not really benefiting from it. So I think there are just so many ways in which therapy has actually become more accessible, which I think is really wonderful. I think that it's changed in how it's done, as in, you know, if we think about Freud starting off <laughs> sitting behind the client, not yes. making any contact, um, to now, and it's just, I think it's making people more comfortable and it's changing. As culture changes, therapy changes. And I think that's why it's being utilized a little more. Uh, when it comes to the stigmatization of it, I do think social media really helped. I do think the fact that we have celebrities and influencers talking about mental health, it started a conversation. Do I always think it's done in a way that's beneficial. Not always, but that's with anything, right? I do think that uh, social media has really, really helped in getting the conversation started and normalizing human suffering. I agree because for me, for the longest, like I was aware of what therapy was, but like you said, it wasn't as accessible. And for me, when I started therapy, which was like about two years ago, it was on the phone and it was virtually and I absolutely loved it. Like I know some people like yeah. the face to face in person, but for me, like it felt like I was just talking to a girlfriend, somebody that was unbiased, that was far removed from my life, that I was able to just openly talk about everything that I've gone through. But I think one of the reasons why I had so much resistance towards therapy, and again, it, it varies across different cultures and whatnot, but for me, I was always kind of made to believe that if you're going to therapy and you're seeking therapy, there is something wrong with you. And when I went through my divorce, the last thing I wanted was, of course, there's always blame on both sides. But I felt like, well, if I'm the one seeking divorce, that means I'm publicly telling everybody that I, it was me. I was the issue. But then I learned the more, yes, the more normalized it was, the more conversations we're having around therapy and seeking therapy, the more I realized like this should have been part of my self-care routine from a long time or self-development routine 
routine from a long time because honestly, it has helped me grow in ways that I could have never imagined. It wasn't just me venting about what I've gone through. It was me learning about myself and how I've coped and why I make the decisions that I make. And, and so much, there was so much to learn about myself that for the longest I've always suppressed. So, you know, because of the podcast, there's so many women that reached out to me. And because I was open about seeking therapy myself, they just reached out to me and said, I just, you know, booked my first appointment. And honestly, that, Aww. yeah, it made my heart so full because it's like, I knew how it felt to have that anxious feeling of starting therapy for the first time. But now fast forward to who I am today, I've grown so much. So to see more women on this journey, it's truly powerful, honestly, to sit back and watch. It's amazing. And what you're describing is also the power of education, you know, educating people that therapy is not just for a certain demographic or a certain issue, that therapy is for absolutely everybody. And that, you know, educating people what it's like to be in therapy and what you can accomplish with therapy is such a powerful tool. And I think it's really helped destigmatize the process. I think that's what it is exactly. I was recently reading The Body Keeps a Score. I don't know if you're familiar with that book, but it's it's course, yeah, yeah, it's pretty popular. And it was just today that I came across a chapter where the author kind of quoted a neurologist and his name is Antonio Damasio. And he said that sometimes we use our minds not to discover facts, but to hide them. Everybody can translate that differently. But the way I translated it was like, how can we as a community of, of whoever it may be, whatever community that you come from, whatever relationships that you have, whoever you're surrounded by, how can we we as individuals be more honest with ourselves and with our loved ones. I think oftentimes we sugarcoat things sometimes because we want to avoid, I guess, like an unwarranted interaction. Maybe sometimes you've gone through trauma that you kind of steer away from any conflict. And sometimes I think when it comes to honesty, we kind of like, it's as if like it's a really brutal truth. And honesty doesn't always have to come packaged in such a way. Why do you think that sometimes we avoid being honest with ourselves and be, and we avoid being honest with loved ones? And I think like with this conversation, I want to provide as much transparency around the topics that we're going to discuss. And I think what you need first and foremost is to be able to be honest with yourself and with your loved ones and, and the relationships that you do have. Yeah. Oh my gosh, absolutely. I think without self-awareness and self trust, it's really hard to experience change. And I think the reason why it's so hard to sometimes be honest with ourselves is because we don't trust that we can handle it. It's not safe enough. It, we're missing that inner safety to go, I can face my reality, I can face my mistake, I can face my past, and I can still be okay. And I think a lot of people are not in that place with themselves, where that's something that they feel like they can handle. And I don't think that our mind ever does things in a malicious way. I think it's just a way to protect us. And that's also a very compassionate way of looking at our flaws, because instead of saying, why am I not honest? Am I being weak? Am I being avoidant? It's going, okay, something in my relationship with myself is not where it needs to be in order to really be intimate and vulnerable with myself. And I think the reason why I ask that is because a lot of us sometimes struggle with the concept of closure. You know, we hear it online a lot that closure comes from you. And it's like, I want to believe that. I don't want to say I don't want, I want to believe that because obviously it's the truth. I want to <laughs> be able to really, truly live my life knowing that closure does come from me. But recently I was speaking to our friend and, and she said, it's a struggle to see closure when I feel like the relationship isn't fully over, when you haven't accepted that the relationship is over. So I think that's where closure can be a little bit tricky if you feel like there's a lot of unanswered questions there. And sometimes you feel like that person owes you so much. So it's like, how can I close the door on that when there's still so much more that I need to know? There's still so much more that I want to kind of like speak to this person because there's I feel like there's just so much unfinished business. So how can we help this person, whoever is going through this, when we say that closure does come from us? 
So when I say closure, I guess in my mind, the way I define that is us choosing how the story ends. Not having closure can be really difficult on us. It can be really painful. It can be really hurtful. It can ruin our future relationships. And that's a lot of power to give to someone else. And closure to me is taking that power back and ensuring that you're taking care of yourself and choosing how that story will end. And that's not an easy task. It often entails a lot of making meaning of what that experience was for you, identifying your lessons, identifying your wounds, honoring all the good that it has done, and then just deciding what you want your new position to this relationship to be. And so we don't need all the missing information. It's nice. Our brain likes mm-hmm. it. And we we, we want the complete picture. But at the end of the day, even if you had the conversation, chances are that you might have a slightly different narrative from one another. Even people that go through a divorce or a breakup and they do talk about it, they did not experience the same thing, even though they experienced the same relationship. And so what's really important is just to focus on what your story is, what your end is, and how you now want to relate to this person. I think that was like my personal struggle. I was like, I have to let them know what they did to me and how they've impacted me. Because like you said, to them, it's a whole completely different story. They feel like they've never done anything wrong. So why would they even (laughs) want to? frustrating. (laughs) Yes, it's very frustrating. Honestly, like I've learned my lesson, like you're almost kind of paralyzing yourself waiting for that apology that will never exist. It's like you're waiting for a train that was never scheduled to come to to the platform that you're at right now. It, It was acceptance. I think that's what I had to come to terms with is accepting that this apology is never going to come. This person will never see your side of the story, even though you two are the main characters of the story. But everybody is their own complex human being and they see things in their own way. So I think that's what it was. I think another, I guess another side to it is like, how do you cope with knowing that your ex-partner has moved on relatively quickly? Because a lot of times you think you've closed the door on that. But if you're still searching up their life on social media and you're able Mm. to see that they are in a whole new relationship in a way, subconsciously you almost devalue yourself you feel like oh was I not good enough how can you have moved on so quickly did that relationship not matter at all to you I think that's like another thing that it's very difficult to come to terms with is how can you really fully pull the plug on that relationship to really seek that closure that you need especially when you've seen that that partner is like moved on to somebody else and sometimes at times it could be very quickly how can you just like live a life detached completely from who they are and what they're doing at this point That's hard. I think you are on to something really important of if you are constantly searching your social media, and if you know that they're in a relationship with someone without them telling you, chances are you're probably a bit more attached than you want to be at that moment. I think that if the person is not with you, the way that they date or heal or move on or process the previous relationship is none of our business. I mean, that sounds really brutal, but the truth is maybe they're dating because they hate their lives and this is a glimmer of hope or a distraction. I mean, most of us kind of hope that's the case. (laughs) Like, they must be devastated. But, you know, ultimately they're going through something and this may benefit them. This may be very detrimental for them. Ultimately, it's not your responsibility what they're doing. Now, I understand the ego hit, but I think the ego hit occurs when we don't necessarily grasp the complexity of the, of relationships. Relationships are so confusing. Yes. 
And, and we enter them and we exit them for so many different reasons. And the fact that the relationship no longer exists does not devalue that the relationship existed. And this is what happens when we think they're in a relationship with someone else that automatically lessens the value of my relationship with that person. And that's just not true. They're just in a different relationship. And I think understanding that maybe we were not a good fit for them does not mean that we are not a good fit for someone else or that we're worthless. So our worth is really not connected to our fit with someone else. And so I think a lot of the frustration and the jealousy and the hurt occurs when our sense of current identity is still tied to this person. And when we are struggling with our beliefs and narratives around relationships. So if we think like if a relationship fails, I failed. If they moved on quickly, that means it didn't matter. So really catching ourselves in these beliefs and assumptions is really important. And then unpacking them and going, why are they here? Where do they stem from? And are they serving me? I think a lot of times, even sometimes when you let go of a relationship or you're saying, you know, I'm seeking closure, I'm letting go, I'm moving on. There's like a part of us that feels like when we're doing that, it's almost like we're making it seem like it never happened because there's a lot of pain and hurt that lies in a relationship breakup sometimes, you know, sometimes it's not amicable. Sometimes it's not, you know, both parties choosing to really leave one another on good terms. And I think a lot of times what we struggle with when it comes to ending a relationship, aside from closure, is just redefining our future without them. I think that's also a little bit of a struggle because not only are you mourning this physical person that's not going to be in your life anymore, you're also kind of closing the book on the future plans that you had with this person. Because a lot of us, like we skip ahead. We already know how our life is going to be with this person 10, 20 years from now. But it's like now that is completely gone. And what I personally find myself doing is trying to salvage the pieces of myself of who I used to be before that relationship. But it's like, I, I really need to understand that I can't do that. It's almost kind of physically impossible or emotionally mentally impossible to do that because no matter what that relationship has changed me to some capacity to some extent but how can we redefine our future without our ex-partners how can we actually like move forward in, in a healthy way as well and and not focus so much on kind of becoming who we used to be again and again I don't know me personally I believe that's not possible but maybe you can provide some insight maybe it is I, I'm not sure no, this is such a great point. And I feel that when we try to forget that we were in this relationship, we're doing ourselves a huge disservice because it does not reflect on the changes and the experiences that we went. And it really doesn't honor either the time that we spent together and the love we did receive, or it doesn't honor at least the effort that we put into that relationship, if nothing else. And so I think when we have this mentality of for, like forgive or forget or just forget, we are wiping out self-understanding or self-awareness at the same time. That relationship shaped and molded us and we need to be aware of it. And maybe we don't like the fact that that occurred, but it did occur. We can't spend so much time with someone. We can't build intimacy and vulnerability with someone and not be changed by it. And so I think that we really uh, resist this concept because we love the familiar. Our brain thinks the familiar is safe. And so what we're going to do is we're going to try really hard to keep the future relatively the yes. same if we can. And this either means not getting over the person and keeping that hope alive, or it may just mean like trying to now cram someone else into the future that you envisioned with your ex and neither is going to be very helpful. So I think we do part of the grieving of a relationship is actually grieving the future that you envisioned. And there has to be a moment where you let it go because it's just not really not possible. And I think if you're trying to salvage pieces of who you are, 
that's great as long as it still aligns with who you are. It's fine if you want to salvage pieces of who you are, if it's actually still who you are, not just a projection from your past or who you used to be. And I think that that's really an important distinction. And again, a one that we really struggle with of like, I used to really enjoy doing this. Yes, but I was also 20 when I enjoyed doing this. And maybe now after being in a relationship for 10 years and being 30, I will not enjoy it. So me going back to that would not be going back to myself, going back to my authenticity would actually just be incredibly inauthentic and irrelevant to who you are. I agree with that because that's something that I struggled with when I say I wanted to go back to who I was. It's more so like I felt like because of whatever I went through in that relationship, it kind of like hardened me. Sometimes like happiness doesn't seem like something that can come into my life. You kind of start like thinking this way because of what you've gone through. And I think that's why sometimes we kind of yearn to be who we used to be before that relationship. But I think that's where self-forgiveness and self-trust also plays a role in kind of redefining who you are and, and growing from this relationship. And do you think these two things kind of go hand in hand, the concept of self-forgiveness and self-trust, like being able to trust yourself again, but also knowing how to forgive yourself in certain situations? Because it's easy to forgive others. I mean, when you are seeking closure, in a way, sometimes some of us actually do forgive our ex-partners or loved ones or anybody that has hurt us in the past. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I don't think you can have self-trust without self-forgiveness, mostly because we all make mistakes. And if you don't learn to forgive yourself along the way, your self-trust is really, really going to suffer. And I think when people say, I just want to be who I was before this experience, my question is always why? I mean, I understand what they're saying, but also why do you not feel like you can have a really healthy or strong relationship with yourself now that meets you at where you're now? And so you're struggling with that self-forgiveness and self-trust. So what you're actually asking for is in the past. And I don't think our future is ever located in our past. No, I just, you know, and again, it's doing ourselves a disservice of saying I'm wiping out all the effort, all the lessons, all the experiences. And yes, of course, you know, when things are really difficult, by no means are we suggesting like, yay, you experienced this, be happy for it. it. That's not it at all. But you have probably gained some new self-awareness and new knowledge and understanding of the world and yourself that maybe potentially you can benefit from now or at least use it in a way to protect yourself in the future. And so I do think the self-forgiveness and self-trust cannot be separated by any means and that if we're living in the past, we're probably not offering those things to ourselves in the present moment. I think also sometimes like it's a really difficult concept to grasp, like the idea of self-forgiveness when you were possibly like the victim of in a situation. Oh my gosh, yeah. If it was actual like physical or emotional and mental abuse and you wonder like, why do I have to forgive myself? And sometimes you you think of forgiving yourself for putting yourself in that situation, but you never voluntarily put yourself in that situation. It happened. So I know there's a lot of roadblocks to self-forgiveness, especially in that specific scenario. But like, what are some ways that we can practice self-forgiveness or maybe achieve it? I know this is probably a very vague question. Everybody has gone through their own circumstances, but maybe just honing in on the idea of like, yeah, being a victim of abuse or actual harm or hurt and and learning how to forgive yourself because a lot of times we beat ourselves up for, again, quote unquote, putting ourselves in that situation. I know. And this is so devastating. I think, you know, the closer you are to an individual, the harder it is to forgive them a lot of the times because the betrayal and the hurt feels deeper. And who is closer to us than ourselves? And so at the end of the day, a lot of us will feel like I betrayed myself. I really let myself down, even though it had nothing to do with you. And that's mostly because who is there to protect you 
if not you. There's a lot of, you know, that individualistic thinking of like, I had to be there for myself and I failed, even if it's completely unrealistic. And the betrayal feels so deep just because the relationship is so intimate. And I think that a lot of times when we can't make sense of a situation or the other person does not give us permission to blame them, we need to find someone to blame. And if there is absolutely no one else that we feel we can blame, we're going to end up blaming ourselves. And that's so incredibly unfair because it's not our fault, but the perpetrators are so good at not taking responsibility, not taking the blame. And if there's only two of us involved, that only leaves us. And so it's very fascinating how people can just not take the blame. And then we feel like we have to pick it up. Honestly. And just staying on the topic of like self-trust, is it true that like past events are not actually the culprit as to why we don't trust ourselves, but instead it's the habits our present self has formed because of what we went through. Because sometimes I feel like when I'm worrying constantly about what's going on in the present, I feel like it's giving me this illusion of control, but really I'm, I'm not, I'm actually like driving myself into anxiety and whatnot. Like when it comes to self-forgiveness, we talked about those roadblocks, but what are, what are some roadblocks to self-trust? And like, I also find myself, maybe this is like a two-part question, but like I often find myself because of what I've gone through and maybe other people that have gone through certain trauma or or whatnot, they don't know how to trust themselves again. So it's almost like they find themselves always seeking reassurance from their friends, family, loved ones. And it's like you're almost training your brain to not trust yourself and to trust others. It's almost like you're shrinking yourself and, and telling your brain, I don't trust myself. I only I will only make decisions based upon what people are telling me to do. So I think that's something that I've struggled with a lot is learning how to trust myself after being in a certain situation like that, but also trying my best not to replay those past events. I mean, I'm living in the present tense right now. So it's like, how can I move forward? How can I learn to trust myself and be open to sometimes, you know, maybe you might make this mistake again. It's sometimes some things are inevitable, but not, you know, just paralyzing yourself and being worried all the time if you're going to make the wrong mistake again. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. I think the more severe the consequences were, the more fear there is. You know, if your mistake caused a lot of pain, then we're going to be very cautious with ourselves. And sometimes what's unfair is that we had to, you know, make a decision for our survival. We were in survival mode, but yet our brain will still judge us mm -hmm. <laughs> a little bit for what we have done and for the fallout that we kind of has to deal with. I think sometimes also, and I'm just going to add this out there, and this is a hard truth, we do not trust ourselves as a way to alleviate responsibility. What I mean by that is, <laughs> I don't trust myself to make a decision, so I'm just not going to make it. Or I don't trust myself to whatever, so then either I'm just going to let what happened happen, or I'm going to allow other people to make these decisions for us. And what that ultimately means is one, A, maybe too scared to make, to take responsibility for this, or two, I don't want to take responsibility for this. And this is where we need to be really brutally honest with ourselves of like, am I actually just avoiding responsibility and not trusting myself is a really convenient way to do that. Yes, Sarah, because I just recently <laughs> had a conversation with one of my friends. She's actually like kind of like a healing expert. Like it was like more so a heart work session. I absolutely loved it because she just gave me that heart truth because I explained to her everything, my upbringing and whatnot. I grew up in a very sheltered household. And because of that, a lot of the choices and decisions were made for me. Now, fast forward to me being a grown adult in my 30s, I am more than capable of making my own choices. But why would I want to do that? Because if I make a mistake, I have no one to blame but myself. Oh, and I yes. think that... Yeah, 
yes, that's the hard truth is finally being courageous enough to take your own life and and put it in your own hands and not the hands of others. Because yes, if something were to go wrong, I was always comfortable in, in blaming others. And that's where all the resentment came from. And, and it's almost like kind of like, yeah, it's I have to take accountability. I allowed certain people to make choices for me. I didn't stand up for myself. So it was easy to kind of like resent them, put the blame on them. And that's how I'm going to continue operating in life. And it's like, you have to break that cycle. It's something that I'm still working on, to be honest. There's a lot there that I have to work on. And it's, it's definitely a journey in itself. But I'm just so glad that you brought that up. Because to hear from another person is, yeah, it's, it's necessary. It's validating as well to know that that's the work that I need to do. I guess like when it comes to also trust on the other side of it, the trust in your partner, is it possible? And I know this might be tricky, but is it possible to love your partner if you don't fully trust them? Because a lot of times, <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. I'm giving you the hard question, Sarah. I'm yeah, sorry. I love it. I love it. I absolutely love your content. I'm like, I'm going to ask her everything that I can think of that I, I've seen in a lot of my DMs, even my own personal experiences. And one of them being is just like, yeah, trusting your partner. And sometimes when you come out of a really horrible relationship, you don't know how to fully navigate a healthy relationship. And so sometimes that distrust brings itself into your new healthy relationship and you don't know how to trust your partner, but you really do love them. You really do care for them. There isn't really like hard evidence to kind of like prove that, yeah, you you are right that they are not trusting. But like, is it possible to navigate a relationship where you love your partner, but you don't fully trust them? And what does that mean internally? Like, how can you work on that? What does that say about yourself? Such a good question. I think we would have to define love right? Like we would have to define what it means. And it might mean very different things for a lot of people. If I were to venture a guess from your context, it would be someone who is still seeking intimacy and and fulfillment in a relationship, but they are someone who is scared of getting hurt again. Would that be kind of... Yes. And absolutely that can happen. I think that's often what happens, like very, very often that's what happens. Um, I think the only way to navigate it, though, is to be really honest with yourself and potentially with your partner, meaning that if we distrust our partner, even though they didn't deserve it, it can be really painful for the other person, very unfair for the other person. And it can alter the way that we engage with this person and leaving them very confused and out of the loop because they've done nothing to actually deserve that treatment. So if we're struggling with trust, I think it's so important to make that as explicit as possible in a relationship to go, look, I feel all these emotions for you. This is what I want for our relationship. This is the level of intimacy and commitment that I'm that I'm searching for. This is the intentionality and the effort I want to put in this relationship. But I need you to know that I've been really hurt and I'm having a hard time trusting this decision or I'm having a hard time trusting yourself, you. And so letting them know where you're at, I think is one of the healthiest and probably one of the only ways to really work through that. But again, you need to feel safe enough to actually have that conversation. I think that's what's really necessary because a lot of times we enter relationships with uncommunicated expectations. We expect so much out of our partner. And when they drop the ball without them knowing that they dropped the ball, we're ready to come full force with our armor on just to attack and say, hey, no, you did me wrong. But they don't even know what they did wrong. It's not a healthy relationship when your partner 
feels like they have to walk on eggshells. But it's also like, I don't want to say, like, I don't want to put the full blame on you, but it's like, yes, we have to communicate our expectations. We have to let our partners know what it is that we're expecting. And if we came out of a relationship where trust was a huge issue, then it's better to explain that to our current partner. And you know what? You never know. Maybe they would be so open to being more transparent about day-to-day things that would make you feel more comfortable and make you not question them as much. So I think communication is definitely key. But this takes us into the idea of self-sabotage. And I think a lot of us do this unknowingly. What are some ways that self-sabotage can manifest in our lives without it being so obvious? Sometimes like, you know, you think that it's it's very obvious that I would know if I'm sabotaging myself, if I'm like hindering myself from certain situations or whatnot, but sometimes it's actually not so obvious. No, it's really not, especially because self-sabotage will try to keep the status quo, meaning it will try to manifest in a way that you see yourself or what you think that you deserve. So if you're scared of success, it's going to sabotage you not allowing you to succeed, for example. And, you know, a lot of people stay, I think this is a really common one, a lot of people stay in context in which they cannot grow. And that's a really really common self-sabotage move, they will choose not obviously this is different for someone who doesn't have a choice, but they will choose to stay living with that roommate. They will choose going to those family gatherings. They will choose to stay in their relationship, whatever it is. Um, They will choose to stay in that town and then they'll go, well, from here, I can't achieve the things I want to achieve. And they're absolutely right from where they are. They absolutely can't. But what they are not being maybe super honest with themselves about is that they can actually change the context itself. And so a lot of us choose situations in which we will be stuck so that they self-sabotage any potential happiness or, or success. And they do it so like effortlessly because there's like a point of like, well, I'm not going to uproot my life. And my question is always like, why not? Exactly. Like we said earlier, when we kind of reenact patterns, we feel like we're in control and also feel safe because like you said, it's like our comfort zone and it feels familiar. And so we stay in this. But is it possible that like, you know, you deserve better and you know what you're capable of, but there's still subtle ways that you're you're sabotaging yourself? Is that possible to be able to be self-aware of knowing what it is that you deserve and how what your potential is? But still, there are ways that you're kind of, again, sabotaging yourself from achieving that next goal. Absolutely. I mean, I feel like we all do it to one extent or another. And I think it's just lack of follow through. When we're super aware, I almost feel like we have more responsibility because we know and we will make little decisions such as not sending that email when you think you probably should send it, but wait an extra two, three days and procrastinate or send that impulsive text or do very little nuanced things that people are around you wouldn't be like, well, they're self-sabotaging by binge drinking every weekend. It's like you're doing very small little things that ensure or at least give you the option of failing at something because you're so scared of that actually following through or you don't believe that you actually deserve better. So if you don't feel like you deserve that promotion, you're going to wait till the very last minute to talk to your boss about it. And so there's so many reasons why I think it really will depend on why you're self-sabotaging as to what sort of behaviors you'll exhibit. But you can be very aware that you're doing it and still do it. 
Yeah, because like also for me, like when you've gone through certain things and you felt like those certain things that you've gone through were like the worst case scenario, you can't help but to always expect the worst case scenario to happen. My family and friends say that about me all the time. They're like, oh my God, you imagine like literally it's like the movie Final Destination. You literally imagine the worst thing possible <laughs> happening. Because I have so much resistance to the worst case scenario, I will sabotage myself. Instead of, like I said earlier, going into whatever relationship, friendship, even like work experience, whatever, with an open mind knowing or just with this openness knowing that you know what you might succeed or there might be a slight chance that you might fail again but just being open to it and not resisting it I think that's where that tug of war happens internally with us like do you agree with that yeah and I think it has a lot to do with again self-trust is if I failed could I handle it or if I failed again after whatever happened to me I feel like it would break me And this is why sometimes we self-sabotage because the act of trying opens us up to the possibility of failing. And maybe at that point in our life, we just can't fail again. We feel like we just can't fail again. And that's fair. You know, I mean, I think there is some wisdom in there that if you don't have that self-safety and self-trust, it might be something that is going to be really hard to recover from. What I think would be maybe healthier is having this conversation with ourselves and being like, I'm not trying for this specific reason. Rather than doing things and then in retrospect going, why didn't I send that email? Why didn't I call him? Why didn't I go on that date? And then we're kind of berating ourselves for not doing something. And when we know exactly why we didn't do it, and it was a very honorable reason. And instead of offering compassion now in retrospect, 10 years later, we're yelling at ourselves because we're like, like, well, you could have, you should have. Yes. And, and we just kind of skip that step of like, no, this is where I'm at. And even 10 years later, I'm going to look back and remember the fact that this is where I was at and not rewrite history and not blame myself. It's like a full circle, like with this conversation, honesty does play a huge role in this when it comes to self-sabotage, self-awareness and understanding like, and even just having this perception of ourselves. Sometimes, you know, I think how we perceive ourselves determines where we place ourselves in the world and our behavior. Like the opinion you have of you is almost like the most, it's actually the most important defining opinion in your life. Yeah, it's usually the last opinion we care about. I think that's why it's really important to kind of work on that perception of ourselves. And, you know, a lot of times I think we struggle with that because because we're so focused on how other people perceive us before we actually look at how we perceive ourselves. And sometimes I think I struggle with this. I feel like others put me in a certain box. And sometimes with social media, you know, we are one way in social media. Sometimes we're a different way in real life. And not that we're putting on a front, but like there's still parts of you that you want to keep private and sacred and you only reserve it for your close family and friends and who you are online. There's still certain parts of you that you don't want out there in the public. You know, you still want to have close relationships in real life versus the relationships that you have online and what you post online. So I think sometimes like I struggle with that perception with how and who I'm perceived online versus how I really want to perceive myself and how I want to work on myself. So sometimes like that external perception does not align sometimes with that internal perception and you don't know where it is that you should stand and where it is that you do stand. Yeah, that's super hard. And I think social media has made it even harder. I I think something that could be helpful in our journey there is to acknowledge the fact that we all want to belong and be liked and that that's very normal. But we also need to like and belong to ourselves. And when we do anything on social, let's just use social as an example, is to ask ourselves, why am I posting this? Why am I wording it this way? Why am I presenting this way? Is it for others or is it for myself? And I think the more 
closely we can represent who we really are and what we genuinely want and need and what our values are, the more likely other people will get that. The more accurately we represent, chances are much higher that people will actually see who we are. Meaning oftentimes we give people snippets or misrepresentations, and then we're really shocked that they don't see us for who we are. And we feel really lonely and we feel this tension of like, but this is who I am. Yeah, I am. And this is how people perceive me. I think there also has to be a moment of like, did I give them a reason to perceive me this way? Of course, they have their own projections and assumptions and biases that you're working against. But we also need to start taking responsibility for the fact that if you only show one aspect of yourself, that's how people are going to see you. If you show an unrealistic version of yourself, that's what people are going to expect. And so we need to be really careful of how we're participating in this dissonance and also have a very compassionate conversation of, do I even know who I am? And do I have the tools to figure out who I am? Because maybe I don't have a clear perception of that person. And I mean, I love identity work. My book is on identity and figuring out who we are. But I feel like unless we really... That was a plug, not intended, (laughs) but I mean, I'm just, (laughs) I'm just so passionate about this topic. And I think perceptions of others have a really big role in our lives until we know what our perception of ourselves is. And it's always going to be changing and that's okay. But I think we get kind of consumed by other people's understanding of us, mostly when we don't know who we are. Yeah, because I think we outsource our self-image to others often. And I think that's what we rely on. What do people think of us? And that's what matters. It, it trumps how we truly feel about ourselves. But you have to ask yourself, like, you are in control of your narrative. You're in control of who you are. And again, like, it all goes back to you when it comes to self-awareness and, and everything that you've gone through and knowing your truth. Because again, not everybody knows your full story. So it's it depends, like, are you going to continue outsourcing your self-image to others? Or are you going to be the one in control of your narrative and defining who you are and your identities? I really want to thank you, Sarah. Like, I felt like this conversation, it went by so quickly. I could, So fast. Yes, I could have you on for hours because I feel like there's just so much. But I kind of wanted to scratch the surface on these topics. And I, I want people to kind of start thinking on their own and, and maybe doing their own research. And of course, reading your book. And if you can, please just share, like, what outlets can people kind of reach you at? I know you have Millennial Therapist on uh, Instagram. But what are some other ways that people can, you know, read more about your work and yourself? You can find me on Millennial Therapist on Instagram. You can find me under my actual name, Sarah Kubrick, uh, (laughs) on Twitter and Facebook. I do have a newsletter, which you can sign up on from my website, which is sarahkubrick.com. And I do write weekly articles for USA Today. So this is where sometimes I have readers ask questions um, and then I respond to them where I talk about topics that seem to be relevant in today's society. But I'm definitely the most active on Instagram. So if you want stories, DMs, daily content, that's where you can find me. I love your journal approach that you have in your snap stories. Oh, thank oh, you. I absolutely love them. They have me because I just started journaling myself recently. Oh, I, I just shared, I was like, I would always roll my eyes when people talk about journaling, but whoa, I wish I was doing this long time ago. It was like the first time ever, um, just a few weeks ago when I actually like wrote a journal entry and I didn't stop. I kept going. I was like, oh my God, I'm finally getting the hang of this. And I was actually crying in the middle of a cafe. I was like, yeah, this, this is what I needed. Like, this is such an amazing release. So I highly recommend journaling. I highly recommend people to check out your snap stories with the journal prompts because like I said, you give me a lot of great ideas, a lot of things that I can ponder on, write about and whatnot in my journal. So thank you so much. I'm excited about your book coming out. And I really want to thank you, Sarah. You were just such a joy to like have a conversation with and you're so kind and so sweet. And I really hope you continue to succeed. I'm so excited about your future projects and your book. And again, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. 
Oh my gosh. No. And thank you. You're so sweet. Your support really means a lot. And I'm always very honored when I get to be on podcasts that mean something. Yes. <laughs> when I, when I can tell that the person is doing this for a very personal and meaningful reason. Yes, yeah. And yeah, no, I was, I was super excited to get to do this with you. So thank you so much for having me and for asking such amazing questions. I hope everyone enjoys the episode. Yes. Thank you so much, Sarah. <laughs> 